Today's podcast is about Ivy Mike, the codename given to the first hydrogen bomb test. The hydrogen bomb is crucial in understanding everything, really. Particularly, it's key to understanding why nuclear war and the threat of nuclear war had such an iron grip on us during the Cold War. We must understand how awesome and dreadful the hydrogen bomb is. But we can't, because we're only human and have little puny human brains. How can we imagine something apocalyptic? We can't. We can just make little feeble attempts and hope the reality is never shown to us. So while we can't imagine what an all-out hydrogen bomb war would look like, we can at least be practical and understand what this thing did in its tests and what the threat of its use, even the mere fact of its existence, has done to the world. So we'll look at the debates over whether the hydrogen bomb, also known as the thermonuclear bomb, whether this hideous thing should even have been invented in the first place, and then we'll scoot over to the Pacific to look at its very first explosion in the Ivy Mike test of 1952. But before we go on, the first thing to make clear is that the hydrogen bomb is not the same thing as the atomic bomb. Both of them, of course, are nuclear bombs. The first nuclear bomb to be invented, of course, was the atomic bomb, and that's what was dropped to Hiroshima and Nagasaki. And the atomic bomb is survivable. At least that was how the thinking went in civil defence planning. If there is an atomic war, it will be awful, of course, it will be dreadful, it will be horrific, but in theory we can survive it. And that is why civil defence in Britain... In the early Cold War, as we've discussed many times in this podcast, was still hopeful. It still had echoes of the Blitz in it, of keeping cheerful and putting on your tin hat and helping your friends and neighbours out of the rubble. There was still a chance to survive this thing. But atomic bombs were dwarfed by the invention of the hydrogen bomb. And that changed everything. After that, if governments were being realistic and truthful, they would have to realise that you cannot survive this thing if there is an all-out nuclear war involving this new thing, the hydrogen bomb, the thermonuclear bomb, then we are talking about a world-ending scenario. We're talking about something apocalyptic. We're talking about the thing you see in threads. Jesus Christ, don't We are talking about a weapon of genocide. And indeed, we'll see that was how scientists, even back in the 50s, even back in the late 40s, were discussing it. Should we invent this thing? Should we go ahead with it? We're talking about a weapon of genocide. Of course, the atomic bomb, its creation, it happened during the war, of course. And depending on your point of view, it was done to stop the war. It was done to save American lives. It was done so that America wouldn't have to invade Japan and lose hundreds and thousands of its young soldiers. It was done to bring that terrible, terrible conflict, the worst the world has ever seen, to a quick end. 
Plenty of people disagree with that, of course. Plenty of people say, no, no, no. The atomic bomb was invented to show everyone what America could do to shut up the Soviets and Stalin. But let's not get into that here. That's another, that's another episode. But at least some people could argue the atomic bomb was done to stop the war, to force Japan to surrender and to save hundreds and thousands of lives by meaning that an invasion of Japan unnecessary. You couldn't apply those arguments to the invention of the hydrogen bomb because that came along later when the war, of course, was over and there was no terrible, urgent need to create a bomb which would force the Japanese surrender or get to it before the Nazis could. That was all gone, of course, by the time the thermonuclear bomb came along. And so scientists, some of them, were wondering, do we need this thing? Should we build this thing? Is it not a genocidal weapon? What purpose does it serve? Was it invented just because that's the natural order of things? Once you've created conventional explosives, is it natural that you will then go on and make bigger and more terrible bombs? And is it natural that science will lead you on to the atomic bomb? And is it natural that that will lead you on to the thermonuclear bomb? And of course, once you have these things, you can't unhave them, you can't get rid of them. I assume lots of my listeners will agree with the notion of nuclear disarmament and that we should ban the bomb. That's very noble, of course, but I don't, I don't think it's realistic. I don't think you can ban it. I think we are stuck with them because of that same notion of horrible, <laughs> dreadful progress. Once you've unleashed the thing, once you've created it, you're stuck with it. You can't give up because the other guys have it. And if you cede the power that the nuclear bomb gives you, you, in the same stroke, hand power to the baddies. And so to avoid one side clawing all the power to themselves, you have to create more and more weapons, and weapons which are more and more dreadful and more and more powerful, hence the hydrogen bomb. Once you've created it, you are stuck with it. And you're stuck with it because the other guys have it. But they only have it because you have it. But you can't give yours up because they have it and they can't give theirs up because you have it and so you are stuck with it. The notion of disarmament is lovely but it's dreamy, it's not realistic. But let's not get into politics. I say this so often in this podcast, it's very easy to step into politics and we are not a political podcast. We are looking at the history of it. We are here to tell stories. So let's tell the story of the invention of the hydrogen bomb. I'm not going to dwell here on the science of the two types of nuclear bomb, mainly because I don't understand nuclear physics. But also, that's not why we're here. So let's just be satisfied with saying atomic bombs involve nuclear fission, which is the splitting of atoms, and its more dreadful cousin, who came later, the hydrogen bomb, involves nuclear fusion, which is the fusing of atoms. For big, important scientific reasons, the hydrogen bomb is worse, far, far more powerful, insanely more powerful, beyond our imagination, powerful. Edward Teller, who was known as the father of the hydrogen bomb, said that this new bomb would be limitless in its destructive power. Indeed, the only thing which would limit how awful you could make the thing was its weight. It had to still be light enough to be loaded onto a bomber or onto a missile. You have to still be able to launch, fire or drop the thing. 
Indeed, the most powerful hydrogen bomb of all, the Tsar Bomba, was restricted. It was cut down in its yield by 50% because bringing it to its full capacity would mean that the bomber plane couldn't even get off the ground. But should this new and terrible bomb be invented in the first place? That's what scientists were asking themselves as far back as the 1940s. There had been talk of making this new bomb, nicknamed the Super, as soon as the atomic bomb had been invented. I suppose scientific discovery and the natural human urge towards progress made these thoughts inevitable. What do we do next? Where do we go from here? But after Hiroshima and Nagasaki, there was no immediate need to go anywhere. The mad and frantic urge to build the bomb before the Nazis or to build the bomb before the Soviets could invade Japan or to build the bomb to force a Japanese surrender, all those arguments and urges and needs had gone. The war was over and America was king of the world. Time then to sit back and enjoy post-war peace and prosperity? No chance. Not with the Soviets snapping at their heels and maybe building an atomic bomb of their own. Not with this new Cold War cracking open. Not with this iron curtain descending across Europe. So the American atomic scientists didn't sit back and congratulate themselves. They were talking, talking, talking. Should we keep going? What's next? And one of them, Edward Teller, a Hungarian, of course, who was now in America pushing for this super to be invented. He was very vocal in going ahead to do this thing. Others were reluctant, including the most famous atomic scientist of them all, Oppenheimer. There were technical doubts, of course, but there were also moral doubts, especially when it was noted that the super, if it was ever invented, would be too powerful to be used for anything but genocide. Did America, the victor, the good guy, the land of the free, want to be known as the sole possessor of a genocide weapon? Well, as Oppenheimer said a couple of years after the destruction of Hiroshima and Nagasaki, the physicists have known sin, and this is a knowledge which they cannot lose. So, Perhaps the drive for scientific discovery is just unstoppable. Once started, you can't rein it in. You can't draw a line and say, all right, lads, let's call a halt once we get to this point. Maybe it's only natural that if some scientific marvel, no matter how dreadful, can be achieved, then it will be done. Because we're horribly human. Someone's going to charge ahead and plant their flag on it. And of course, there's the eternal Cold War debate of, well, if the Americans don't do it, then the Soviets will, eventually. If you don't like it, it's tough. A bunch of clever men have worked out how it's done, and they're going to go ahead and bloody do it, so that their names can be engraved in history. And so, in the Pacific, in November 1952, the first hydrogen bomb test occurred. 
known as Ivy Mike. The bomb was positioned on the island of Ilugalab. Now, uh, nuclear tourism is increasingly popular, of course. Crowds visit the site of the first atomic explosion in New Mexico. But you can't visit the site of the first hydrogen bomb explosion because the island no longer exists. When the bomb was exploded, it turned the ocean around it into steam and it vaporised the island. Now there is only a massive crater under the water where it used to be. In less than a minute, you will see the most powerful explosion ever witnessed by human eyes. The blast will come out of the horizon just about there. And this is the significance of the moment. This is the first full-scale test of a hydrogen device. If the reaction goes, we're in the thermonuclear era. Last few seconds are counted. Eight, seven, six, four, three, two, one. The shock waves of the world's first H-bomb rush towards the onlookers, and spellbound, they watch something never seen before. Fantastic in its form and in its power, a frantic addition to the arsenal of arms. The violence of the bomb is comparable with the energy released by the sun itself. Later, a helicopter flew over and the pilot found that the island had completely disappeared. Nothing there but water and a deep crater. So where did the island go? It was pulverised in the blast, turned to ash, and the ash was sucked up into the mushroom cloud to fall slowly back into the sea as radioactive fallout. Now, the bomb weighed 82 tonnes, Too heavy to be loaded onto a bomber and dropped on an enemy. Of course, that wasn't the point of the Ivy Mike test. They weren't using it to inflict damage or genocide on an enemy. They just wanted to see if the thing worked. And yes, to show their enemies that the thing worked. So what did this monstrous explosion look like? Time magazine reported a sailor who likened the mushroom cloud not to a mushroom, but to a cauliflower, as the cloud was rough. Now, I like that image. It's not a smooth, pale mushroom, but a rough, bulbous, textured head of cauliflower. I think the Ivy Mike explosion looks like a fairy liquid bubble. In its very first moment after detonation... And you can see the footage on YouTube. It looks like a, a huge orange bubble full of stretchy, bubbly pockets. And it expands and grows higher. And yes, eventually stretches out into a white mushroom cloud or cauliflower cloud. 
And that's the end of our quick look at the hydrogen bomb, the, the birth of the terrible thermonuclear weapon. I hope you'll accept a slightly shorter podcast episode this week, but I think everyone knows that my book deadline is due. It's drawing near and I'm basically a nervous wreck. Moving house in the middle of a pandemic whilst writing a book with an approaching deadline make me quite stressed. So I am working flat out. Um, so slightly shorter podcast once the deadline has passed and the book is in, we will have long, luxurious podcast episodes which go on for hours and hours. But for now, I think you will all um, allow me to make them a bit shorter than normal. Thank you everyone for listening. And remember, you can find me on Twitter at Julie A. McDowell or on Facebook under Nuclear Britain if you want to keep up with my nuclear research. And if you want to support my podcast and my nuclear work, you can become a patron. Take a look at my Patreon page, which is patreon.com forward slash atomic hobo let me say thank you this week give a quick shout out to the following patrons it's because of these good guys that you don't ever have to suffer any adverts in this podcast because my podcast income comes through donations through patreon this week we're saying thank you to mark willis andreas roland neil collinson john cinnamond michelle b ian mckay laney peterson tony newman ben taylor heather parker and Jonathan Abelins. So thank you everyone for listening and I'll be back next Sunday with another episode. <laughs>